John chapter 5. <clears throat> Here is a, um, a controversial statement for us to chew on this morning. Nowhere in the Bible is the Sabbath annulled by a command or by the example of Jesus Christ or the apostles. Just chew on that for a moment. If we carefully and honestly study the most controversial and difficult of the Apostle Paul's statements, we'll see that he never used his authority to abolish the keeping of the Sabbath either. In the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the controversy is always how, not whether or not, we must keep the Sabbath. Jesus never says it no longer matters, and so we are therefore no longer need to observe it. But this has been a controversial subject throughout history. The Baptist Confession of Faith, 1689, uh, which is a confessional document I very much appreciate for its doctrinal clarity, it says this, it says, The Sabbath is then kept holy unto the Lord, when men, after a due preparing of their hearts and observing their common affairs aforehand, do not only observe and holy rest all day from their works, words, and thoughts about their worldly employment and recreations, but are also taken up the whole time in the public and private exercises of his worship and in the duties of necessity and mercy. But it's not just the Baptists who think like that. Westminster Confession says virtually the same thing, almost word for word. And in reality, while this has been a, a controversial discussion point, uh, so should we keep the Sabbath or not, most conservative churches and denominations have promoted the idea, most throughout history, the last 2,000 years have promoted the idea of, of setting aside one day a week to pursue a, a, a sanctified rest. It's only been really in the last 40 or 50 years that the church in general and particular Christians have set aside this notion that we ought, again from the confession, observe and, and holy rest all day from their own works, words, thoughts about their worldly employment and recreation. More and more Christians are saying that Sunday is their day. They work very hard for six days, six days of the week, and so they, they claim the seventh to do what they want to do. But the Bible says, specifically in Acts chapter 20, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, and in Revelation chapter 1, that the first day of the week is set aside as the Lord's Day. Early Christians, so very early in the book of Acts, they were largely Jewish. And as Jews, they continued to observe the Jewish Sabbath each Saturday. They kept the Sabbath laws. And those in Jerusalem, those Jewish Christians living in Jerusalem at least, they went to the temple for worship. But then after work on Sunday, on the first day of the week, they would meet in one another's homes and would devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, the breaking of bread and the prayers. Eventually, as persecution increased and the gospel continued to spread further and further into Gentile lands, into the uh, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, the observation of the, the Jewish 
Saturday Sabbath became less and less common for Christians. The Jewish Christians weren't welcome. And Gentile Christians had no concept of a Jewish Sabbath anyway. But they continued to gather. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 16 that they did so on the first day of the week. And so the 1689 Confession puts it like this. As it is the law of nature, that in general a proportion of time by God's appointment be set apart for the worship of God, so by His word in a positive moral and perpetual commandment, binding all men in all ages, He hath particularly appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy unto Him which from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ was the last day of the week, and from the resurrection of Christ was changed into the first day of the week, which is called the Lord's Day, and is to be continued to the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath, the observation of the last day of the week, being abolished. That's from the Baptist Confession, 1689. But why is this so controversial, even to us? I'm convinced that it's controversial because we entirely miss the point, often, of the Sabbath. So did the Pharisees, by the way. So John chapter 5, we're going to look just at verses 16, 17, and 18. Then we're going to talk some about the Sabbath because this is the controversy that really starts the bigger controversy. So John chapter 5, verse 16. This is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath, that is, healings. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, let's just stop and pray. God, I pray that you would feed us today with what we need from your word. Help us to understand. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. This passage begins, uh, really begins the open conflict that the Pharisees will have with Jesus throughout his ministry, all the way through to his crucifixion. And one of the big issues, and then really taken up with the apostles after that, And one of the big issues that they have with Jesus, and this happens time and time again in the gospel accounts, one of the big issues that they have with him, one of their accusations against him, is his observance of the Sabbath day. Did Jesus break the Sabbath? Verse 18 seems to say that he did. Look at verse 18 again. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, But he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So verse 18 seems to say that he did break the Sabbath. And today many would say that Jesus Jesus occasionally broke Sabbath laws in order to establish a, a higher law of love, which is clearly more important, they will tell you. But this implies that the law is sometimes set in opposition with love that sometimes it's necessary to break God's law in order to be seen as loving, to heal someone, for example. This line of thinking has led to many churches to eventually end up adopting open and affirming stances on a variety of transgressions of God's law, but, but love is not against the law. 
As I said, verse 18, however, seems to say that Jesus did break the Sabbath, but if he did, if Jesus broke the Sabbath, he would be guilty of breaking the fourth commandment. And if he broke the fourth commandment, then he broke the law. And if he broke the law, then he could not have been perfectly righteous. And if he was not perfectly righteous, then his righteousness could not have been imputed to us. And if his righteousness was not imputed onto us, then we are still dead in our trespasses and sins. And Jesus was just an unfortunate man in history who came really close to being perfect, but not fully. Did Jesus break the Sabbath? If I were transcribing this verse, verse 18 today, I'd probably put quotes around breaking the Sabbath. That's what they're claiming that he's doing. They're claiming that he's breaking the Sabbath. They're claiming that he's making himself equal with God. So we could read this verse this way. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And so we have to understand that this is the accusation against him. Verse 18 is the accusation against him, but it's not the reality. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 tells us that Jesus was in every respect tempted as we are, yet without sin. He himself said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, in the midst of a discussion about the law, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. There's no, there's no exception clause in there for the Sabbath. Now we could spend time this morning talking about the ceremonial religious laws, which were really only applicable to the Jews under their Jewish religion. We could talk about the national laws of Israel versus God's moral law, which is applicable to all people, some of which have been made national laws of the United States. Shall not kill, for example. But let's go in a different direction this morning. Let's answer the question, what's the point of the Sabbath? Why were they so worked up about this? Because I think if we can get a handle on the point of the Sabbath, we can have a better understanding of what Jesus is really doing here and why it's offending these people so much. So in order to understand the Sabbath, we really need to look at three important Old Testament passages regarding the Sabbath. So let's start at the beginning, literally. Genesis chapter 2. Turn over there. We're going to move around just a little bit today, a little bit more than normal. Genesis chapter 2. I'm going to read just verses 1 through 3. Genesis 2, verses 1, 2, and 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. 
And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So this account of God resting on the seventh day of creation, and incidentally, he was not winded, he was not tired, there's something else going on here. So in this account of him resting, this falls in the middle of the events, uh, really of the sixth day of creation. Do you see that? At the end of chapter 1 ends with this, the very last verse of chapter 1, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good, and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. And chapter 2 opens with the seventh day there, verses 1 through 3. But then beginning in verse 4, we're brought back for a deeper look at the creation of mankind on, the, on day 6. So, so that verse, uh, verse 7 there, says this. Then the Lord uh, God formed man from the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he, man became a living creature. So beginning in verse 4, through uh, for the next several verses, we're back on day 6. The implication here in, in putting the day of rest in the midst of, of the account of the creation of man, the implication is that this day of rest is something unique in the relationship that God has with man that he doesn't have with the rest of his creation. It's very clear there in verse 27 of chapter 1. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Nothing else in all of creation is made in the image of God except for humanity. Only mankind, only humans, only men and women and boys and girls, only we are created in the image of God. But even more than that, in creating man, God issued what we sometimes call the the creation mandate. It's verse 28 there of chapter 1. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And this mandate, this command, contains promises, and really it's the same promise that God will make to Abram later. We've been talking about this in our Sunday school class. He blessed them. He gave them the gift of the land. Here we read that they are told to fill the earth, the land, and that is to fill it with their offspring, the seed of man, land, seed, blessing. This fundamental mandate, this verse, pushes the human family beyond the boundaries of the garden, fill the earth, he says, to the whole world. And even though the word covenant isn't found here. This is clearly covenantal language, God's promising language, land, seed, blessing. We can see here God's promises. Sometimes we call this the the Edenic, like as in Garden of Eden, Edenic covenant or Adamic covenant, covenant with Adam. And like some of the other covenants, it also requires man, Adam, to keep God's creation ordinances as they're sometimes called. 
So there are really three ordinances that man is given here to do. He is to labor. He's to work the garden and keep it. He's called to marry. He says, be fruitful and multiply. Leave your father and mother. Hold fast to your wife. And he's also called to Sabbath. Verse 3 again of chapter 2. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This idea of a Sabbath rest, a holy day, it's not rooted in the law. It's rooted in creation. It's found as a part of the creation mandate of what we are called to do. Work the land, work the garden and keep it. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and keep the Sabbath day holy. But it is an important part of the law. This is the second important Old Testament passage regarding the Sabbath that we need to look at. It's Exodus chapter 20. So turn over there. Exodus chapter 20. I'm going to read just verses 8 through 11. Exodus 20, beginning in verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord God made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Of course, this is the, this is the fourth of the Ten Commandments. Um, and of the ten, of those ten commandments, this is the only one that we probably the only one that we make excuses for when we break. Um, maybe this one in honor of your father and mother. Sometimes we say that those two don't apply to us. But this is where the Pharisees, and, and I want to add even our modern blue laws, get hung up. So recently I walked into the store down in DeGraff and I saw the sign on the door said something to the effect of no alcohol sales on Sunday. And I have to ask the question, is it working? Is, it, is that working in our society? And not just alcohol sales. I don't want to get into that whole thing. Are those kind of laws working to keep our people holy? That the Sabbath day, even the Christian Sabbath of Sunday, is, is a holy day. Does having these blue laws on the books cause godliness to grow in our nation? These kinds of laws, so generally they're just restrictions for Sunday purposes. They're, they're actually used, not just in the United States, they're used across Canada and European countries as well. But are they working in those places to help people keep the Christian Sabbath holy? I'm not going to answer that question, that's for you. We're not here to debate certain types of laws. But I think you can see where we can easily get hung up. We stop after we read, on this day you shall not do any work. We stop there. But that's not what, all that this commandment says. See, the Sabbath commandment here in the, in the midst of the Ten Commandments is not about not working. This is about worship. That's what God means here when He says that, that we're to keep it holy. 
God, God's work in the six days of creations in Genesis chapter 1 entitles him to set apart, to consecrate, to, to, to make holy a seventh day of, of holy rest for himself and for those created in his image as well. The Sabbath day is to be set aside as a day and not just of rest, but of worship. We should think of this the way that maybe the prophet Isaiah does. God has made the heavens and the earth to be his temple. And in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 1, God compares the the created world to Israel's temple. And this is what we read. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? What is the place of my rest? The house that they would build would be the temple, the place of God's rest. Can you see the connection between the the temple, the the house of worship, and and the place of rest? Can you see the connection between worship and rest? The Sabbath is to be a time of holy rest. And it's rooted in creation. It is not rooted in the law. But God put it in his law to to force his people to stop, take a break, set aside one day in seven to focus, not on getting stuff done, not on ourselves, but rather to intentionally turn our focus to God and really onto his work. But what is it that God has done? What is God's work? Turn over to Nehemiah. This is what he does. He, Nehemiah here focuses on God's work in Nehemiah chapter 9. You remember, Nehemiah is about the rebuilding of the wall around Jerusalem after their uh, captivity. I'm just going to read part of this, beginning in verse 6. So Nehemiah 9, 6. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers." You made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them and and they went through the midst of the sea on dry land and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into a mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You spoke, you came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in and possess the land that you had sworn to give them. 
He actually continues for the rest of the chapter detailing more of God's work. But in these verses, we can see, I'm going to show you five things that God has done, five works of God. And in many cases, he continues to do these things for his glory and for the good of his people. So see if these still resonate with us today. The first is this. We worship God because he is the creator and sustainer of all things. Verse 6 tells us this clearly. We ought to stop and rest in God in worship because he is the giver of life and breath that we all have. Of course, John 1, 1 through 5 reminds us that Christ was active in creation. Therefore, he is worthy of our worship for this reason as well. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This alone, those statements ought to be enough for us to stop and rest and worship. Because he has created all things, and in him is life. But Nehemiah goes on to give us some more reasons. Verses 7 and 8 there of Nehemiah 9, we are reminded of his covenant promise. In fact, he says, you have kept your promise for you are righteous at the end of verse 8. And Jesus tells us that the broken bread is his body and the cup is the new covenant in his blood. He's telling us that he is a righteous covenant keeper who has died to establish this new covenant, this new promise of the forgiveness of sins and adoption to his family as children of God. Our God is a covenant keep making and keeping God. These are the works that he has done. The third work of God that Nehemiah reminds us of here in, in verses 9 through 12, not only is... is has God done the work of creation? Not only the work of covenant and keeping promises, but God has also worked for our redemption. Of course, in those verses, we can see the talks about the people of Israel being redeemed from their slavery in Egypt. Um, and for that work, God is worthy of Sabbath worship. And we'll come back to that in just a little bit. But for us as New Testament Christians... Christ has redeemed us from our slavery to sin. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14 says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. See, Jesus says in today's passage in John chapter 5, verse 17, he, he says, my father is working until now, and I am working. And this is the work that he's talking about. He's talking about creation. He's talking about covenant, purifying for himself a people for his own possession. He's talking about redemption. 
Then Nehemiah goes on in verses 13 and 14 to speak of the giving of the law. Uh, We could call this the work of calling his people to holiness. These verses are worth reading again. Nehemiah 9, 13 and 14. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath. Interesting that he points that one out. Made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. Right in the middle there, Nehemiah mentions the Sabbath. And he actually calls it the holy Sabbath. It's as if in his mind the Sabbath is the central focus of the law because it's set apart for worship. And then the fifth work of God that Nehemiah mentions that he is engaged in here in verse 15 is feeding. Give us this day our daily bread as Jesus would pray. Of course, here in Nehemiah, he's referring to manna from heaven water from the rocks. God provided the Israelites what they needed when they were out in the desert wandering. But we know that as Christians, our true bread is Christ. In fact, in the next chapter, in John chapter 6, he'll even use a statement that will end up causing, that actually caused many people to turn away eventually by the end of the chapter. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. And that statement ends up causing many people to turn away. These are just some of the ways in which God is working and that Christ is also working, John 5, 17. Sabbath worship is about setting aside one day in seven to proclaim the work of God, to sing. For example, Psalm 95, verse 6, Oh, come, let us bow down, let us worship, and let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, our Creator. It is to proclaim to one another the next verses, Psalm 95, 7 and 8. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. This is what Sabbath worship is supposed to be. But one of the main focuses of Sabbath worship for Christians is to pay special attention to his work of redemption. One of our main focuses as New Testament Christians is to pay special attention to God's work of redemption. So we have to think of this from an Old Testament viewpoint. This will bring us to the third uh, important Old Testament passage on the Sabbath. I know we've talked about Nehemiah here, but I want to talk about one more. So as we saw, the Sabbath is rooted in creation, the seventh day. The Genesis account actually reflects and It actually kind of anticipates God's redemption of Israel from Egypt. So here's what I mean. God commands the forces of nature. We understand this. Uh, He does so whether it is in the creation account, let there be light, or in the plagues of Egypt. He does so in the New Testament, Jesus walking on water, calming storms. So He brings light on earth just as he brings darkness to the Egyptians, one of the plagues. He divides the waters of the sea, uh, the waters of the earth in creation, just as he divided the waters of the Red Sea for the Israelites to pass through. 
In creation, he makes the earth, Genesis 1 tells us, to swarm with swarms of living creatures. Later, he would inundate Egypt with swarms, plagues of frogs, gnats, flies, locusts. And then finally, just as just as God celebrates his creative work in a, in a Sabbath rest on day seven, he will actually call his people to celebrate his work of redemption from their slavery in Egypt by keeping the Sabbath. So Deuteronomy chapter five. Deuteronomy five, uh, verse just 12 through 15. Deuteronomy 5.12, observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servants or your female servant, your ox, your donkey, or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest with you, uh, rest as well as you. Verse 15. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day is a reminder of God's redemption. The Christian Sabbath, for us, Sunday, the Lord's day, is a reminder of Christ's redemptive work on the cross. So the Sabbath is is rooted in God's work of creation. It was included in the law to remind his people of their redemption. It's also a sign for all generations, Deuteronomy tells us, of God's continuing work of of sanctification. And and this is another important passage for us in Exodus chapter 31. I know we're moving a bunch. But in Exodus 31, I think I said three passages. This is the fifth one. Verse 12. And the Lord said to Moses, You're to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, uh, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and throughout your generations, between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is, a, it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days work shall be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with them on the Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. It's important to note here that this passage on the Sabbath in Exodus 31, it follows several chapters, beginning right around chapter 25, where God personally gives Moses very detailed instructions about worship. From the details of the tabernacle 
to the priest's garments, to the priest's consecration, and, and everything in between. This section is, is clearly about proper worship. Of course, the very next section is about improper worship. Aaron makes a golden calf and the people worship it. But this section is about proper worship. And, and above all, he says in verse 13, the regular weekly observation of Sabbath worship stood as a sign of God's covenant with His people. It was a regular reminder that God used to sanctify His people. Th- through the Sabbath, they were being made holy by God Himself. See, the Sabbath, even the, the Christian Sabbath, is a perpetual reminder of the status of God's people. Just as God set one day apart from all the others, so He has also set apart one people from all the others. There's no one else on earth doing what we do, what Christian churches do every Lord's Day. We are a set-apart people, a people holy to the Lord. And Sabbath is meant to be a sign of God's covenant faithfulness. He's faithful to his set-apart people, to make them holy, to purify for himself a a people for his own possession. So now turn back to John chapter 5. My father is working until now, and I am working. And this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father making himself equal to God. The Jews, the the Pharisees, they understood rightly that Jesus was claiming to be one with the Father, specifically here in their work, which we could summarize all those things that we said as saving and sustaining his people. This is what Jesus was claiming to do, to be at one with the Father in their work. And for them, this was blasphemy. Because they rejected the notion that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. You know that Jesus will actually go further than saying that they were doing the same work of saving and sustaining the people? Jesus will go so far as to claim in Mark chapter 2, verse 28, that He was in fact the Lord of the Sabbath. This is an astonishing claim. With all that we have seen today about the Old Testament viewpoint of the Sabbath, that the Sabbath is the central focus, the focal point of the worship of the people of God, reminding them of His work in creation, of His His covenant work, of His redemptive work, of His sanctifying work, and His work of providing daily bread. With all that we have said about the Sabbath being an important and regular reminder to worship God, Jesus now claims lordship over that. No wonder they wanted to kill him. Because if he wasn't who he said he was, they should have killed him. The temple was God's dwelling in space. I don't mean in space. I mean it was his dwelling in a place. The place that he dwelt with his people, specifically there in Jerusalem. The time that he dwelt with them, specifically, was the Sabbath day when they would come and gather together to worship. That was the regular time that he was with his people when they would approach the temple. But Jesus is greater than the temple. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath, he says. 
And just as the temple was a a foreshadow of the Christ, it pointed us forward to Christ. When the word became flesh and dwelt among men, Jesus is also the purpose and the object of the Sabbath. In in Exodus chapter 20, verse 10, in in the law, there in the Ten Commandments, the Sabbath is said to belong especially to the Lord. But Jesus has claimed that the Sabbath belongs to him. And since the Sabbath was the sign of the Old Covenant, Jesus is placing himself as the head of the covenant. He is God, he's saying. This is only a role that God can play. Only a role that, 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 that Israel's God can serve. And Jesus is claiming to be the head of that covenant. And then he takes it further. And he says this, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So what does this mean for us? It helps us to understand why they were so upset with him, even to the point of putting him to death, because if Jesus was not who he claimed to be, they should have put him to death. But if the claims that Jesus makes are true, if they're true, If Jesus really is doing the work that God has done, if he's really doing God's work, we probably have to wrestle with our concept and understanding of the Christian Sabbath, of the Lord's day, the purpose of this day. But there's one more statement that Jesus makes about the Sabbath that that stands to remind us that this day is not a day of simply not working, but something else entirely. Because in Mark 2, verse 27, Jesus makes this statement. He says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Christian Sabbath, the Lord's day, isn't a day of rules. It's a day of worship. In Hebrews chapters 3 and 4, the preacher of that book, the preacher of Hebrews, he paints a picture for for those Jewish Christians He paints a picture of Christ giving his own people the rest that neither Moses nor Joshua could provide in the promised land. The rest of a a true and better promised land. What difference did the coming of Jesus make to Sabbath rest? What difference did it make? Sinclair Ferguson, a Jewish, not Jewish, a Scottish... uh, a Scottish theologian, puts it like this. He says, If Christ crucified and risen, in Christ crucified and risen, we find eternal rest, and we are restored to communion with God. The lost treasures of Sabbath are restored. We in Christ from our, we rest in Christ from our labor of self-sufficiency, and we have access to the Father. As we meet with him, he shows us himself, his ways, his world, his purposes, his glory. That's what we do when we gather together and we hear the God's word proclaimed. We read and we pray and we sing. But we have not yet reached the goal of the true promised land. We still struggle to rest from our labors. We still must strive to enter that rest, Hebrews 4.11 tells us. As a result of the weekly nature of the Christian Sabbath, this continues as a reminder that we are, we are not yet home with the Father. 
And since this rest is ours, only through union with Christ in his death and resurrection, our struggle to refuse the old life and enjoy the new one continue. We're going to struggle. We're going to toil by the sweat of our brows with thorns and thistles every week until we finally enter into the rest of our eternal Sabbath with our God and Savior. And so God has graciously graciously set aside for us one day in seven to remind us consistently every week that he is working. He is working. He has worked in creation and in sustaining creation. He is working in in his covenant promises, in keeping his promises. He is working in his redemption for a people for his own possession redeeming us from our slavery to sin. He is working in calling us to holiness. And he is working through providing the daily bread that we need. God is working. Christ is working. And he will soon bring us, bring that work really to completion. And soon we will be able to enter into his holy rest, the true promised land forever where it will be a forever Sabbath, trusting in a holy God who has worked for us. When Jesus said, my father is working until now and I am working, that's what he was doing. That's what Jesus was doing, working for us. Let's pray. Lord, it is my prayer not that we would look at this at the rule of Sabbath and, oh, I can't, I can't work today. It's against the law. It's against the rules. But that we would view the Lord's day, the Sabbath, as something for us that you have given us graciously to stop, to forget about our daily drudgery of things to do and be reminded of your work your work in sustaining us, of your work in promising redemption for us, your work in Christ's shed blood, your work in redeeming us, saving us, making us your own, a people for your own possession, your work in calling us to holiness and transforming us into Christ-likeness, and your work of giving us what we need, daily bread, Lord, remind us of your works as we stop and rest, resting in the knowledge that you have have done these things. You are doing these things. You are working for us and for your glory. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be driven to worship, not to rules, but to worship. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.